Today on episode number 314 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Dr. Courtney Plotz joins me to talk about culturally responsive online teaching. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Before I introduce today's guest, I wanted to thank today's sponsors, and that is SaneBox and Text Expander. And to start, I'm going to share a little bit about SaneBox. It is an email filter system that is absolutely a wonderful way to make email work for us. This has been a time for me in my personal career that I've received more email than ever, and it's difficult to keep up with, but it is a lot easier with SaneBox. What it does is it allows my email to filter out into things I don't want to look at until later, or their newsletters, or if it's something that I suspect could be spam, but I also don't want to attract additional spam by unsubscribing or attempting to unsubscribe, there's the Sane black hole, and I can just drag an email into there and never hear from that entity again. I can ask Sandbox to remind me if this person hasn't replied to me in a certain amount of time. I can snooze emails. There's all kinds of ways that I can really make email work for me. And I'm going to suggest that you head on over to the link that's in the show notes for the Sandbox service and get started right away and have your inbox cleaned up in minutes. It works with all the major email providers and... It really is an essential part for me at trying to serve the people that I serve in terms of all the things that we're dealing with in this time. Dr. Courtney Plotz is a dynamic keynote speaker, author, and professor. As the national chair of the Council for At-Risk Student Education and Professional Standards and a school psychologist, her primary focus is on online teaching and learning best practices. Dr. Plotz is highly sought after for educational and leadership conferences for her ability to connect with audiences and share common sense practices that can be easily integrated. Dr. Plotz was recognized in 2017 by the California State Legislature for her bold commitment to change in education, and in 2019 she was recognized by Magna Publishing as one of the best of speakers at the Educational Leadership Conference. Dr. Plotz has contributed her subject matter expertise to a variety of book publications, most recently noted in Small Teaching Online by Flower Darby with James M. Lang, published in June 2019. Dr. Plotz's book, entitled The Space Between, Identifying Cultural Canyons in Online Spaces and Use of Latinx Culture to Bridge the Divide, will be available in August of 2020. Courtney, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks, Bonnie. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. We talk a lot on this podcast about pervasive myths about teaching. And one of them I know you're very well familiar with is just this idea that good teaching is just good teaching. You just, 
you know, everything's the same and it's going to land on all our students, regardless of their backgrounds, regardless of their culture, in the same way. And it's kind of up to them to sort of get with the program or not. <laughs> Would you discuss a little bit of that myth and maybe where you've seen it in your work? Sure, sure. So just age-wise, I'm kind of the benefit of higher education focusing on non-traditional students. So I've had the benefit of instructors who were kind of on that first and second wave of interacting with their students and really setting them up for success. So as for myself, I was a K-12 public school teacher. I taught in higher education. I was also the director of the Community and Human Services Department at Eastern University Esperanza College, which is primarily a Latino school in Philadelphia. And so when we look at these practices for teaching, it kind of comes through a filter. And that filter is there are certain values that go with higher education and expert teaching and learning. And it, that lens is kind of filtered through there are certain values such as independence and self-efficacy and self-motivated. You know, when you look at the literature, you look at the research on, you know, who makes a good online learner or who, you know, what are the characteristics? It kind of falls in this one value center. And what I've been looking at is other cultural values that can translate those same opportunities, that same power that can come from teaching and learning. And, and what we're talking about is we're not talking about shifting all best practices to a cultural lens. What we're talking about is let's take a look at what we're doing and add some features that will allow what we're doing to flow through other cultural lenses. Courtney, so much of learning, teaching, whatever it is we can use to describe what's been happening, a lot has been moved online. And this myth that and then you, you really started to allude to some of this. That's kind of like on our learners, you know, self-efficacy's got some troubles with it. If we take that a little bit too far, this independence, you know, isn't going to work well for all different types of learners. So talk a little bit now what you're seeing. I mean, in recent months, as so many people have moved online and so many people weren't really equipped to do so. And what you saw in terms of maybe this myth and how it was, became maybe even amplified. Sure, sure. So just a little bit of context. About four years ago, the organization that I work for, we started looking at standards for how to work with non-traditional student populations in face-to-face and online learning environments. And there's some pieces that have to be in place before we did this kind of mass throw everyone online. And I had the opportunity to work with Illuma Therapy to, to build pieces of policy to kind of keep people safe in these environments. So just a couple of points. So we have a lot of instructors who rely heavily on student services for their students. So in a face-to-face environment, maybe their student is having an issue. Maybe their student needs the support of the counseling services or they need the support of an academic advisor. But when we put everyone online, We didn't equip our faculty to know what that process was in an online space. So, for instance, there's been a lot of research looking at people in recovery, students who are maybe living with an abuser. But we haven't outlined for our faculty what that looks like in an online space. So, for instance, right now, Bonnie, if you and I were doing a webinar, you wouldn't even know where I am. So if something was going on, 
you know, you could call 911, but most 911s are not connected interstate, you know, through interstate communication. So what I've seen is a lot of faculty have really stepped up to the challenge. Some of them have taken it as an opportunity to be, to be creative. Some of them have taken it as an opportunity just to learn. Some of them are really overwhelmed and just kind of need a place to start. But, you know, the way I look at it is I want every faculty member and every student regardless of circumstance, to feel connected in the online space. Whether it was, you know, it didn't take us a pandemic to realize that this was important. You know, we've been working on this for about four or five years. So really just, you know, commending the faculty that have moved from point A to point B, you know, and some of them have done it seamlessly because they're just open to the process. And some people just of timing, it just, it took a minute for faculty to kind of get their bearings. But overall, it's now time for part B, which is how well are we really reaching our students? How is that authenticity coming through? And that authenticity is different when and, you know, it, Bonnie, if you and I know each other face to face and then we go online, it's a way different experience than for our new students coming in who don't know us, who haven't been on campus, who haven't spent that time face to face. So those are big challenges that we're, we're looking at. But I think overall, I think most faculty have done the best that they can do for the circumstance, you know, and we can always all do better. But I think it was just a, you know, that that initial change was point A to point B. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to do this great because nobody was prepared, you know. So now that everyone's kind of got their bearings and maybe they can get, you know, a little summer respite, hopefully, you know, for themselves to kind of really reflect for themselves and really, you know, do some self-care and come back in the fall. But again, that difference in coming back in the fall is our new students don't know us face to face. So we really need to make a concerted effort to make sure we're doing everything we can to connect with them in the online spaces. I keep thinking about that not only will some of them not know us, that this will be a fresh new experience for them, but also that we'll be wearing masks. And side note, totally in support of masks. Let's stay safe, people. Mm -hmm. I'm not at all advocating that we shouldn't. I'm advocating Mm -hmm. the fact that in so much of my work, I hope that I'm some kind of an influence in getting people to remove some of those barriers of power, you know, between themselves that hold them back from really being able to be in true relationship and true connection with their students. And now I go, oh gosh, people are talking. I just was listening to some congressional testimony this morning that institutions of higher education are talking about. And oh gosh, I forgot the institution, so I don't want to get it wrong. But one of the larger institutions has bought over a mile of plexiglass. And I was just like, if this isn't, you know, taking some of the figurative things that so many of us have been fighting against and then literally building up, you know, barriers, um, whether that be a mask, again, which I support, but um, I'm trying to picture this for myself as a teacher. I'm wearing a mask. I don't leave the house very often, but occasionally when I do, I wear a mask, but not for that long and not with people I'm really trying to connect with. Sure. And the other piece of it is it's kind of a pick and choose thing as well, because my director is Muslim. So you're telling people on the one hand, they can't wear a full burqa, Mm. right? But then we have to have masks. And so, you know, when you're thinking culturally competent, you know, the reasons are different. But if you're working in a place like, you know, Michigan that has a large Muslim population, you know, maybe they already have those policies in place in places. But if, if not, how are you considering all students and all people? Your book, which I am so excited to read, is called The Space Between. I will read the full title. 
identifying cultural canyons in online spaces and the use of Latinx culture to bridge the divide. Would you tell us about the space between? Sure, sure. So the space between is just the gap between myself as an instructor and my students. And it it usually happens in, because of a couple reasons. It's it's because maybe I'm not as genuine or not as real as I could be to my students, or maybe something in my video podcast and my facial expressions is kind of falling short. So one of the best pieces of advice I ever got, I was listening to a psychologist and she said, you know, she said, if you're going to be a psychologist in online spaces, your personality kind of has to be three times what it is in person to bridge that gap. And I kind of thought about that clinically and I thought, okay, I get that if we're talking counseling or really making the connection. And over time, that just kind of got a little bit more real to me, which was, yeah. And and I think the same thing applies to teaching is that, you know, we want to be as real as we can be, as genuine as we can be. And the space between is just the gap between how well we're reaching our students and how well we think we're reaching our students. You know, especially in this climate, an announcement isn't enough a discussion post isn't enough. We really have to work on those online soft skills that bridge that cultural canyon between online culture, learning culture, and other cultures, whether that's Latinx, African-American, LGBTQA, whatever that is, we need to work on those soft skills to just enhance what we're already doing. I believe it was yesterday, James M. Lang came out with a article in the Chronicle, and I've never seen him do this before. This is on Twitter where he was sharing. I think he had, and I'll, I'll link to this in the show notes, I think he had about five tweets where he's like, all right, I'm about to post this thing, but I want to explain to you why I'm doing this first so that I don't get myself into too much trouble. And and I'm never going to be able to encapsulate his beautiful, poignant writing in my own clumsy words, but I will attempt to do so now. It sounded to me like he was saying that in moving online, if they end up you know, needing to be online in the fall again, just as we have been, that he just feels a disproportionate greater difficulty connecting with his students of color. And Mm -hmm. he used the example of email and you just mentioned announcements. And so Mm -hmm. one of the things that I was thinking about is that, first of all, email, (laughs) difficult in my mind to connect with all students in, in terms of Oh gosh, there were so many problems that he brought up. You could have, you know, written entire books on, but just the quantity of emails that institutions send and every email then gets shown up on their screen with equal importance and et cetera, et cetera. But I was thinking about what you would have to share in terms of if we either need to be online or imagine this, Courtney, want to be online beside email, besides announcements, which really are just another form of email, what are the ways in which you see us really actually being able to really leverage it in ways to to make these kinds of connections? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So there's a couple of things that are coming to mind. It's interesting. So when Flower Darby was writing her book and she contacted me, it was interesting to hear her point of view because she said, you know, this book just needs something else. Like, tell me about non-traditional student populations. Tell me about what what is the deal. And so, you know, I had shared some information with her and you guys can, can see that in the book. But the second part is in my own research, working with African-American men, I found it fascinating that I asked them, if you're working shift work, 
because the majority of people that I had interviewed for that research were working shift work. And I said, well, where's your computer access? They said at work. And I said, okay, so on your break, if you're allowed to use that computer, is that when you respond to your instructor? And they said, no. And I said, well, how come? They said, well, what would you think if I wrote an email at three o'clock in the morning to you? And a lot of them said, nothing good happens after 11 o'clock. And that can span cultures. You know, I've heard people of all races say that, but in the black community, it's understood that there's a stereotype that's going with that timestamp. And they said they'd just rather not do it. They'd rather pick up the phone when it's more convenient or in the morning or in the, so, you know, there are these nuances to it. But a lot of the clinical research shows that especially for African-American men, online telehealth groups are very beneficial. So if we're talking about, what can the faculty do or what can leaders do? Be prepared to listen. And it's really basic human stuff. You know, we have to listen to people regardless of race, color, creed. We, we have to get back to or we have to get to where I can hear you and I understand and I might agree, I might disagree, and I'm not suggesting that with George Floyd. I'm just saying in general spaces. But we have to get to a place where people can hear each other. And just sharing a little bit about my own personal life, it's interesting to me because my mom is white and my dad is black, and my brother looks like George Floyd. My mom looks like you, Bunny. <laughs> so I hear people and I hear their concerns, and it's always hard for me to articulate to one side of my family where the other side is coming from. So personally, I totally totally understand where the divide is. And I, to I totally get it. But higher education has a responsibility to shepherd people to the next level. And that's what we have to do. We have to be the beacons of hope. We have to be the beacons of enlightenment. And we have to help people move to the next level. And whether that is holding listening circles for our students, whether that's really making sure as higher ed leaders that we're reaching out to the faculty who are comfortable with this stuff, like our sociologists, our psychologists, if that's where we start, then that's where we start. But they have to know those important pieces and they have to be allowed to be available. So when we're talking online, that means that there's a link to a chat group and that chat group is solely talking about XYZ issues. And you know, some of them might be for the students at large. Some of them might be for different groups. You know, I trust higher ed leaders to know their campus and I trust them to know their, their climate and they can make those decisions. But again, as far as online goes, there, there's a lot of support that shows that African-American men in particular benefit a lot from online conversations. You talked earlier about the desire to be real, the desire to be genuine, and another thing that you shared earlier is that so much of online predisposes us to value, perhaps even overvalue independence and self-efficacy, that especially that independence to me really is a representative for me of ways in which I've needed to change my teaching approaches to better reflect the students I serve. Would you share some things that come to mind around what is a more of a collectivist approach look like in an online class versus an individualistic? I used the example earlier of announcements. I am telling you something. <laughs> Email, I am telling you something and you can reply back. But And, and then it's just me, I, I, I as the right. professor. Right. I'm telling you, you, you as the student. Can right. you help us see a little bit of a different lens around what a collectivism sure. looks like? Sure. So, so one of the biggest pieces, again, it comes back to that prevention piece, is really sitting down. What we've done is we've made online learning transactional. 
That's what we've done. I do this, you do this, I do this, you do this, I'm going to grade this, you're going to reflect on it, then you're going to do better next time. But psychologically, if we really want learners to be interdependent and we want them engaged, if we want them to do everything that we say we want them to do, like read the syllabus and participate three times a week and do peer reviews, we have to set the climate for them to do that. So one of the easiest things that helps do that is outline in your announcement what your sense of community is. Because sense of community is in the literature all over the place is something that's important, but no one's talking about building it and defining it. So just like you'd post an announcement to say, hey, everything's due here, before you even post that, you should say, this is how, how you should feel when you enter. This is what my values are for this learning community. This is what it's not. And I'm going to grade it. If it's important, we should be grading it. We should be assessing it. Working with other people and feeling included is a big part of your workforce. It's working with people who are, who are different than you, who come from different places, and you're working on projects together. But in online spaces, we reduce that to transaction. So we, we say, oh, well, sense of community is so important. All the literature says that, right? Everything about online learning, sense of community, we want people to feel engaged, we want them to feel empowered, but yet nobody is defining that in the space. And so one of the easiest things you can do is identify values to your sense of community. You know, if I'm a student coming in and I've never been on online learning, don't orient me to your space with an orientation. Show me community and I'll participate. Show me that I'm safe. Show me you understand my concerns. That if I'm an African-American male, show me that you will respond if someone is saying something that's inappropriate. Like, what is the value of the community? But instead, we do this individualistic thing. And then we wonder why we're losing Latin American and Latino students all over the place in online learning. But what it comes down to is we can absolutely look at a sense of community and grade it. So people always say, well, Courtney, what does that look like? What does this grading a sense of community look like? Well, it looks like you outline some values just some examples off the top of my head, whether it's something like civility, whether it's something like, you know, appreciation for diversity or wh whatever those, whatever those constructs are that you want to look at. And you post that each week in the announcement section and you grade them as a group to show that it's not just about you. It's about the interactions. It's about these other pieces. So hopefully that was helpful. Oh, it really, really was. One of the best articles I ever read in my entire master's, entire doctorate is called On the Folly of Rewarding A While Hoping for B. And it was in the Academy Management something, something back. I'm trying to think of when it was first published, but like a gazillion years ago. <laughs> if that, that's a precise term. But you're reminding me of that in the classic example. It was written so long ago, but it literally could have been just written today in terms of these examples come up all the time. We say in workplaces how essential teamwork is. But then we give individual performance reviews and bonuses. If it's a salesperson, for example, like, teamwork, except for in sales, except that you were, you know, the best at whatever this individualistic thing was. So it, this comes up all the time. Yeah. yeah. And it's also just a value. Psychologically, people want to know that you're, it's not lip service. Mm -hmm. And the way that we're doing it right now is like, well, you care about the community, but you don't know how to pronounce my name. Yeah. It's a disconnect. And I know that faculty want it too. They want to feel as close to their students in person as they do online. They want that. Mm -hmm. That's not something they don't want. It's why they're educators. <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> they want to be with a student. So, you know, I'm just trying to point out conduits that can help them get there. I struggle so much with the transactional thing that you talked about. And as soon as we do assign points to something, grades, and of course, we there's lots of conversations happening about the challenges with grading, even just as a concept. As soon as we do that, then, and we say, you know, respond three times or this kind of, we've instantly made it transactional. But I I think what I'm hearing you say, though, is if you're going to grade this stuff over here, then you better grade this stuff over here. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And that grading looks different. It's just saying, hey, we're doing excellent here. We're doing good here. This is something that we're developing as a group, as a group. Mm -hmm. And all of our students, each semester, each class, we have different students, Even if we have students that are repeating, the students that they're interacting with are different. So each class that we're doing is an opportunity to really connect with our students. And I think that just psychologically showing a a value to the community, of the community, for the community is just essential for that. You also talked about your intentions for when people enter that space. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you, the descriptors that you used was wanting people to be safe What are some ways we can help people be more safe when they come into online spaces? Yeah, so so again, for the past four or five years, we've actually been training online diversity officers. And so giving them the tools to kind of scan discussion threads, to know where to kind of support people, prop people up, maybe support their point of view or add something extra, that can be helpful. We've actually worked with colleges to design courses that actually have a safe space that people can click on. Because psychologically, right, that helps because if I'm in a home with an abuser and I can't get away, and for some places we've done it where it's just like a YouTube video and it's the electronic fish tank and you're taking five minutes to watch the fish float around. In other places, it's resources. It just depends. But we really have to do the intentionality that's required. So if I'm an online student, I should have access to everything that's on the campus. So it's bringing in those features and making people feel safe. It's, a, it's an instructor pledge that says, you know, to the best of my ability, when I'm not posting and I'm not grading, I am combing this class to look for examples of civility that I want to highlight. I'm looking for examples of really open-mindedness, all of those soft skills. And that's in a whole other training that we do. But that's really just looking at all of those skills and showing instructors how to build those skills in online spaces. And all of this is supplemental to some of the things that we're doing. You know, for some instructors, it's going to be brand new stuff. But I mean, if if you're a teacher's teacher, if you're an educator's educator, this is the pieces that you're missing. And one of the questions that I love to pose is, you know, how many educators have had a conversation like this? You know, if they would just read the syllabus or... It was like, hey, so-and-so was doing so good. What happened? I don't know what happened. Like they were doing fine. And then all of a sudden they stopped participating. Well, a lot of those answers to both of those questions lie in what we're talking about. Yeah, the whole it's in the syllabus is just, (laughs) I don't find those jokes funny. I don't, I don't find them funny. (laughs) Whenever I come across something where something's confusing, I just, I assume it's on me. And I guess part of it is the ways in which learning management systems are designed and some of the things that you're not able to tweak to to help people navigate. But for the most part, I'm like, if if they have a question about something, then I'm like, oh, how could I have done that better? And I think that's a wonderful approach to take in terms, and, and we're going to be wrong sometimes when we start out mm-hmm. by asking what could we have done differently? 
there is a possibility that the person isn't doing the work, but my goodness, (laughs) I, I think that's actually one of the ways in which this pandemic and all this move to online may help some people who are in teaching positions is just to have a little bit of a greater sense of empathy for it's, it's not at all a perfect comparison, but anytime I think we can expand our empathy, I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah. And I I think it's just an intentionality thing. You know, the semester comes around and we've either been off for teaching in the summer, we've gone to a conference, we've got some good ideas we're going to implement. Right. But it's really more about what is it that I really want to convey in this space you know, we're the academic leaders in the online space. What is it that we're really trying to do here? Are we really just trying to have people regurgitate information? Or are we really trying to create a space where genuine investigatory type of learning is happening? And that's very hard to do when you're not sure the rules of the game. And it's very hard to do when the game literally is spelled out in another culture's favor. And this isn't even a black and white thing. This is an academic culture versus online culture versus home culture versus ethnic culture. And that doesn't mean that every culture has to adjust and change and that there's good and bad. It just means if I really wanna connect with you, I need to learn more about you and really define this space for you. You wouldn't invite me to your house for dinner and not tell me the address. And so it's kind of like, well, I, I know that you live wherever it is that you live. You know, I, uh, you live in XYZ state, but that doesn't help if you really want me to come over. If you really want me to come over, you give me your address. And it's that same, it's that same concept. Yeah. And so we've had past guests talk too about even the writing styles and such, you know, if how important is it to meeting the learning outcomes that you write in formal APA style versus giving you a place where you can take your words and the way that you would construct them normally, just as I will expect to do. And the way that I construct my words normally is not APA, by the way. So just inviting people to show up. Yet at the same time, we also want to be equipping people for being able to speak in a way that will gain them access to academic spaces. So it's not like we we can ignore our academic standards, but I think no, we no, can no. ignore them in a lot of discussion forums. <laughs> I think yeah, if you really want to yeah. have a discussion forum actually represent anything like a discussion, then you might really purposefully set that kind of stuff aside. Yeah, absolutely. And even even for myself, you know, I and I've shared this in, in other interviews and podcasts. So for myself, I, I have a processing disorder that's worse than less than one percent of the population. But my verbal skills fall in the superior range. So if you really want to know what I know, you would ask me. Writing is extremely difficult for me, not because I don't know, not because I don't understand, not because I didn't go to a good school. It's because my brain literally doesn't function that way. And I was presenting one time and we were talking about online learning and discussions. And one of the things that I had brought up was if I were in a car accident, God forbid, and I was in a wheelchair, you wouldn't ask me to get up and run and judge my academic ability based on that. And for a lot of our non-traditional students, they have not had the pathway to even get accommodations for a lot of the things that they would need accommodations for. So not only are they coming in, especially when we're talking about physical, you know, students who've experienced physical abuse, 
students who may have an undiagnosed learning disability, they don't have an access pathway. And yes, the college, some colleges provide that type of testing and they can get accommodations, but if their whole life they've kind of gone under the radar because they haven't been a behavior problem and they're kind of okay at school, that's a huge curve. And I'm 41. And I told people that I said, look, you know, if that's what you're going to judge me on academically, I understand that. So as a writer, I am a very interdependent writer. It's not that I can't write on my own, but I really need someone who has the skill to look over it, to kind of say, what are you trying to say here? Are you trying to say this? Or are you trying to say that? So, but does that make me any less of an academic? No, I love education. I love fixing it and I love contributing to it. But I love what you said about, you know, this is not saying then, you know, oh, well, then we're just going to get rid of all the academic standards. No, we have to all understand as faculty that we are in the business of developing students. We're in the development business. Part of education is human development. It's me learning more things, doing more things, gaining more skills. Um, Not all students come packaged, you know, the way that we'd like them to. And so really just having a heart for that. And again, I love what you said. You know, it's not about losing academic rigor and focusing solely on students' feelings. It's about really coming down to how am I conveying this information? How can I keep this academic rigor with making sure that my students are really getting the support that they require? Is there anything else you want to tell us about teaching online before we go to the recommendation segment? No, I just, if you're out there, uh, hang in there, (laughs) hang in there. I know it's been crazy and online learning is a great thing and it's not for everyone and it's not for every teacher, but I think it is here to stay. So just give yourself time, be gracious to develop your skills and just hang in there. Before we get to the recommendations segment, I just wanted to thank our second sponsor for today's episode and that is Text Expander. You've heard me share about them Many times in the past, if you're a long-time listener, Text Expander is one of the first things that I install on a new computer, and what it lets me do is basically save a ton of time in typing. I can type in what they call a snippet. It's just a few characters that are easy for me to remember, and when I press my space bar, it automatically expands into a longer section of text or some kind of a text that I find difficult to remember, like my work phone number. Definitely not a phone number I ever remember, but I definitely remember my snippet that I type in and press the space bar and it gets going. You also can actually use Text Expander in a team. So if you wanted to have consistent responses coming from people, you could have a centralized place of keeping those responses and keep everyone on the same page. And sometimes that starts to seem a little bit artificial to people that, you know, you're, you're making, you know, the robot do, do the work. And I find quite the opposite, actually, because I can, for example, have a text expander snippet for a recommendation letter. And what it allows me to do if, is have all the common things I need to have in a letter like that. Who is it to? Who is it from? Et cetera, et cetera. But then fill in the gaps with fill in so I can type in the things that I really want to invest the time in making sure I have the wording just right to recommend that person for whatever it is I'm sending that letter for. So I would highly suggest that you go over to textexpander.com slash podcast, let them know that you heard about Text Expander from Teaching in Higher Ed, and get ready to automate the things that deserve to be automated to free you up to have the time to invest in the more meaningful and significant work. Thanks, Text Expander, for sponsoring this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. 
This is the time in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. And I have one that is just a general one. I suspect that it probably doesn't even need to be said, but I wouldn't want to make that assumption. There are, in my experience, still too many white people who are coming into seeing some of what's been happening in our country and around the world and saying, you know, oh gosh, this is so surprising for me. What can I do? And I think maybe just don't ask that question. Maybe just (laughs) use Google. Google's your friend. And so this podcast is your friend too. So I'm going to link to a how to be an anti-racist. But I'm just reading a lot, hearing from people of color that are being asked during this time to not only go through the emotional, physical spiritual labor that they're being burdened with now and always, but in addition to that, to educate those of us who are not people of color. And so I will link to a how to be an anti-racist. I'm also going to recommend that we just don't need to talk. We could just stop and just listen. And there's a lot that can emerge in that space. And I'm going to pass it over to you, Courtney, for your recommendations. That is awesome. I actually recommend, so four times a year, the organization that I'm affiliated with, they do series, webinar series. They're free. They're called community series. And the next one is in September. It's on September 9th and it's called Teaching Connectedness. And it's just about how to connect in online spaces. It's just about really being authentic and genuine. And regardless of race, color, how we can kind of convey that we care about one another and how we can convey that to our students and our colleagues in online spaces. That is my share. Wonderful. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And hopefully if people are downloading this before then, they'll have a chance to register. And sounds like a wonderful resource. Awesome. Courtney, I'm so glad to have had this chance to connect with you and to become aware of your work and can't wait to read that book and add it to the show notes when it comes out. And congratulations in advance. That is a really big deal. And as I said to you, when we first started speaking today, I sadly have never heard of a book about online teaching specific toward a Latinx community. And so I'm just excited. And I know you have more books to come on different groups. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bonnie. I appreciate your time. This has been so fun and I'm just really grateful for the time. Thank you. Dr. Courtney Plotz, thank you so much for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This was episode number 314. If you'd like to reference the show notes, you can head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash 314. You're also to welcome to subscribe over there at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe or right there on the homepage and you'll receive, I was going to say a weekly update. Let's just say it hasn't really been weekly lately, but uh, semi-regular updates that have the most current episodes, show notes in them, as well as a blog post about teaching or productivity written by me. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.